Jesus, the one whom we worship, the one whom we celebrate at Crossroads, Jesus was a master storyteller. Of all the traits that he had, one of my favorite things about Jesus' ministry is what an extraordinary storyteller he was. And he used parables and analogies and metaphors to speak about the kingdom of God. And he told a story, a parable that is recorded in Matthew chapter 18 that I just love. And it's about a man who owed a king an enormous amount of money. And it's the, Jesus says that he owed a king 10,000 talents. And if you look in your Bible and the little notes or whatever, you'll see that 10,000 talents is an extraordinary amount of money. It's unimaginably large. Uh, Jesus is actually using extreme hyperbolic language uh, in this. The uh, 10,000 uh, 10, talents, uh, scholars say that one talent is equivalent to 20 years worth of wages. And so this man owes 10,000 talents. He's in debt, 10,000 talents, which means that he was 200,000 years worth of wages in debt. So I want you to take your annual salary, multiply it by 200,000, and imagine that's how much you owed the bank. That's a lot of money. Um, in fact, it would be impossible to even am amass that kind of debt uh, in today's world unless you're the United States federal government, because they managed to do it. But that is an extraordinary amount of debt, and the point, that's the point Jesus is making. It's absurd. It's an absurd amount. This man had a debt that he could never pay off. He couldn't pay it off through hard work. He couldn't pay it off through cheating the system. He couldn't pay it off by asking his grandmother for a loan. I mean, he is as in debt as you could be, up to his eyeballs, as the commercial used to say. Well, the day came and the balance was due and the man was called in to the king's court to settle his debt. And of course, the guy couldn't even make a dent in the amount that he owed. And so the king declares that he is to be sent to debtor's prison where he and his family would be brought in as indentured servants and would have to work for generations and generations and generations until the debt was paid off. And so this would have meant that the next several generations, the next 200,000 years worth of generations of this man's family would be slaves to the state. So this is a, I mean, a, a, a sentence of slavery to this man's genera the generations that follow him. And so the man is hopeless. He's thinking, well, I mean, what do I do in a situation like this? And so he throws himself on the ground and he begs the king for mercy. And he begs and he pleads for more and more and more time to pay off the debt, which is really futile anyway. Because he couldn't pay it off in 100,000 lifetimes. And so he's begging, he's pleading, and then the king does something that's unexpected. The king, it says, Jesus said, began to feel a deep compassion on the man. And we don't really know why. We just know that he felt compassion on the man. And the king looks to the man and says, you know what? Forget about it. You don't owe me anything. Your debt is forgiven. And nobody could believe it that was hearing Jesus tell this story. This isn't a true story. It's a parable that Jesus was telling. But everyone who heard Jesus telling the story was like, this is insane. No way. They couldn't believe it. I mean, here's a man who had been forgiven a huge amount of debt, right? <laughs> I planned that and practiced it all week. 
But this man, this massive amount of debt, and he probably felt free. I'm just making sure nobody's sleeping on me just yet. (laughs) But he probably felt free for the first time in his life. He walks out of that courtroom, I can just imagine, feeling like the biggest weight had been lifted off of him. I remember about two years ago, my wife and I did the whole Dave Ramsey plan, and we cut up our credit cards, and the day that we we paid our school loans off was just this amazing feeling. And that pales into comparison to what it would be like to be forgiven this amount of debt. And so the man, you just imagine he's walking off just so free. But then the way Jesus tells the story, it gets really interesting next. On this way home, this guy, you think he's just walking in the clouds. He's so excited. But he comes across a friend who basically owes him like a few bucks, a hundred denarii. And this was probably one of those situations where this man had probably gone out for wings with his buddies a while back. And this guy was like, hey, I don't have any cash. Can I pay you back? This is before Venmo and PayPal. He's like, hey, next time I see you, I'll I'll pay you that 10 bucks that I owe you for the wings or whatever. Well, the man sees him and he goes, oh, there's my friend. He owes me $10. And he says, hey, you owe me some money. Could Could I get my $10 back? And the guy says to him, basically, you know what? Sorry. Hey, I've had a tough week. Can I get you the money later? And this is where the story gets, takes this shocking turn. Because there's a man who has been forgiven this insane amount of money. And he begins to scream and yell and act like a baby and threaten to throw this, his friend in prison over a few bucks. And as Jesus was telling this story, everybody would have been rolling their eyes. They would have said, are you kidding me? Nobody who is forgiven 200,000 years worth of wages would really pitch a fit over $10, over 100 denarii. And Jesus says, you know, that's exactly the point. Nobody would act like this who had been forgiven that amount of debt. And Jesus is saying that anyone who has experienced deep forgiveness or has experienced deep compassion in their lives ought to naturally and logically feel compelled to show deep forgiveness and love toward others. Jesus, the parable teaches, if you've experienced a great love, it would be absurd not to extend that love to others. My name is Will, if we haven't met, and I have the privilege of leading this church Uh, as your pastor. And this morning, we are continuing our study on what it means to be a church family. What does it mean to be church as family? And families are based, they ought to be, they're based on mutual love for one another. In order to truly be a family, there must be love. You've got to love one another if you really want to experience what a family is. And in a church family, specifically, our love must be motivated by the love of God. Our love toward others ought to be motivated by the love that God has shown us. And what I want you to see this morning is that by understanding the depths and the, the links in which God, his, He loves us, the depths in which He is compassionate toward us and forgiving toward us, when we understand those depths, that is when we can truly love one another as a Christian community, as a church family. And our text for today is the Gospel of John chapter 13. And I want to focus, this is a long passage, and we're going to sort of do a survey of the entire chapter. But I want to zero in on verse 34 and then tease that out as we study the rest of the chapter. And verse 34 says, Jesus tells his disciples, he says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. How? Just as I have loved you, Jesus says, that is how you are to love one another. By this, 
people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, in the coming weeks, we're going to talk about what it means to love our city and love our neighbors. But Jesus here is specifically talking to how Christians love one another. The world is watching the church. And when they see bitterness and infighting and divisiveness among the people of God, that speaks a gospel that, does not, that is not parallel with the gospel that Jesus teaches. And so if we are to, as a church, proclaim to our city that Jesus is love and he is forgiving, then the message that our lives must preach to our city is that Jesus is love and that he is forgiving and that we are people who have experienced great forgiveness and now we show it toward one another. Jesus says, you want to know how to reach the world? You want to know how how your neighbors will learn to love and know Jesus? Love one another in your church family well. And they'll, they'll be jealous of it. And they'll say, I want to be a part of that. And they'll come to know Jesus. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples by the way that you love one another. And this passage, this chapter, is Jesus' last evening with his disciples before he would be crucified. And on this night, he eats with them, he prepares a meal for them, and he offers his final words to them, and then he washes their feet. And it's amazing because this is Jesus' last night on this earth before, of course, for three days, that is. (laughs) But this is Jesus' last night with his disciples, and he's interested in one thing and one thing only. He's interested in showing his disciples how they are to love one another as a faith family. And you think about this, he's taught them for three years now. Think of all the sermons that they've heard him preach. Think of all the miracles they've seen him perform. But Jesus knows that miracles and signs and wonders and sermons are not enough to transform somebody and teach them how to love one another. They have to experience love firsthand before they can truly show it to one another. And Jesus gets down on his knees and he washes their feet. And he shows them that if you want to love the world with my love, you've got to experience my love first. And so I want you to see two ways. I had three, but I thought it was going to be a long sermon, so I cut it down to two. You're welcome. (laughs) Two ways that Jesus demonstrates how to love others in this chapter. The first is Jesus demonstrates love by showing radical humility. In this chapter, we see in the first 17 or so verses, this scene where Jesus, he gets up from a table where they had been eating the Passover meal, And then he, as he leaves the table, he does something unexpected. He does something shocking. It says in verse 4, it says, Jesus rose from the supper. He laid aside his outer garments and he took a towel. He tied it around his waist and then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. And the disciples were stunned by this. Peter tells Jesus in verse 8, he says, Jesus, you will never wash my feet. I'm not going to let you do this. I'm not going to let you touch my feet, Lord. It's too demeaning. It's too humiliating. You are my Lord. You're my teacher. You're my master. Jesus, you will go nowhere near my feet. And in this culture, feet are already kind of gross anyway. But in this culture, feet were considered incredibly dirty. I mean, you think it's a hot, dry, Palestinian climate, and these men wore sandals all the time. And so it would have been typical for, it's hot, so you're sweating, you're wearing sandals, your feet are exposed, the hot, dry, the dust comes up and it gets caked on your feet. You've got mud on your feet all the time. 
And it smells disgusting. And it would, the, the act of bending down and washing someone's feet would have been out of the question. It would have been so demeaning. In fact, it was so demeaning that Jewish rabbis actually enacted a law that said slaves could not be asked to unlatch their master's sandals because it would bring them too close to their master's feet. See, the Jewish rabbi, in a, in a culture that experienced, that had slavery, that treated indentured servitude, people as the lowest class, they said even slaves should not have to touch their master's shoes. It would be too demeaning. They understood it to be so humiliating that even slaves had legal protections from having to come in contact with someone else's feet. This is how low it would have been to touch somebody's feet. But Jesus, he's not a slave, he's the master. Yet he goes lower than a slave. Jesus gives up his rights, he gives up his protections, and he serves and he loves others, listen to me church, in spite of who he is. He knows he's the king. He knows he's the creator of all things. He knows that in him and through him and by him, all things were created. And in him and through him and by him, all things are going back to glory. He knows who he is, but yet he lowers himself and and serves others in spite of who he is. And Jesus' humility in this life is most uh, clearly articulated in Philippians chapter 2, where the Apostle Paul says, Jesus who, though he was in the form of God, meaning he is the image of the invisible God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. He poured himself out by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus lowers himself in spite of who he is, and he washes the disciples' feet. But the humility of Jesus goes so much further than just washing somebody's feet, doesn't it? He emptied himself, it says. He was at the right hand of the Father in heaven, and he left the throne room of heaven and traveled the infinite distance between heaven and earth so that he could be born as a little baby to a virgin girl in Nazareth, which was like a small town that nobody cared about, like Jersey. Nothing good comes out of Nazareth, they used to say. I make that joke all the time. Sorry if you're from Jersey. It's fun. You guys have better beaches than us. So, But he humbled himself and he died a thief's death on the cross. Romans 5.8 shows us that while Jesus was dying on the cross, he was demonstrating true love for us. His humility on display, showing us how to love. It says that but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners... Still his enemies, still rebelling against him, he lowered himself onto a cross and he died for us. And when Jesus washed their feet, not only is he giving them a foretaste of what is to come the next day where he would die for them, he served the disciples in spite of who he was. He was the king, yet he lowered himself to wash feet. And in coming to earth, emptying himself and dying in our place, he serves us in spite of who he is. That is love. Love is emptying yourself for the sake of the others. And that means that in order to truly love one another as a church family, that means that it doesn't matter how gifted you are, how wealthy you are, how successful you are, how much leadership you've amassed within the church, that means that there is no person in this congregation that is below you, 
There's no task in this congregation that is beneath you. To love one another as a family means that we humble ourselves and we wash each other's feet. And this starts first with your pastors and your elders. Our job is not to flex authority over you all. Our job is to humbly love and to serve you all. We lead through service. That's what it means to be a pastor, Kyle. That's what it means for me to be a pastor. And we are as a church, everyone is to humbly pour themselves out for the sake of the other. And we wash each other's feet. Figuratively, yes, but often, sometimes, maybe even literally. But Jesus goes even further than just humility. He shows us that love toward others requires radical patience and a willingness to forgive others who have wronged you. This is amazing here. This passage shows that Jesus washed all of his disciples' feet. Do you know who was in the room that night? Judas. Judas was in the room that night. And verse 2 says that Satan had already put it into the heart of Judas to betray Jesus. And Jesus knew this. He was aware of this. He knew that his murder was impending and it was because of his friend Judas. Yet he got up from the table, not only made dinner for Judas, but he got up from the table, took his sandals off and washed his feet. Judas had already sold his location. Jesus was a dead man walking because of Judas. Jesus was aware of that, yet Jesus emptied himself He forgave and he was patient and he got on his hands and his knees and touched the mud, the sweat, the dirt, and the toe jam of Judas and washed his feet. See, as this foot washing was happening, there was a behind the scenes thing that was happening that only Judas and Jesus were aware of. Judas knew what he had done. Jesus knew what he had done. And it's why Jesus quotes Psalm 40 in this passage when he says, the one who has eaten my bread has lifted up his heel against me. He says, there's somebody in here who just ate the food I prepared that has already sold me out. And Judas had already made these arrangements. And at this moment, Jesus gets down on his knees and he demonstrates patience and forgiveness and love and grace and mercy in this moment. You know, earlier we mentioned, I mentioned that Jesus served in spite of who he was, in spite of who he is. But here we see that Jesus serves in spite of who his disciples are. And Jesus loves you not only in spite of who he is, but he loves you and serves you in spite of who you are. Not just Judas. Judas isn't the only one who, had betray, who would betray Jesus that night. Jesus says, hey, one of you guys is going to betray me later this evening. Three times. And Peter, of course, we know is the one who did it. And Peter's thinking, no way would I betray Jesus. I love you, Jesus. And Jesus knew that, but in the midst of it, he washes Peter's feet as well. And in all of this, Jesus remains patient and loving, and he continually offers forgiveness And we will see that Jesus actually extends forgiveness both to Judas and to Peter. And this is an interesting character study because Peter, you see, after he betrays Jesus, after the resurrection, receives Jesus' forgiveness and continues to walk in holiness. But Judas could not live with his own sin and he refused to receive the grace that Jesus offered and it cost him his life. And Jesus is showing us that it doesn't matter what you've done or how offensive you've been toward God. Jesus stands ready to forgive you. Murder. (laughs) 
Jesus stands ready to forgive because he's gracious and slow to anger and abounding in love. And you know, as he is serving Judas and Peter, he is showing us how to do what it says in the Sermon on the Mount that we are to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. And the reason that as Christians we can love our enemies and love those that we're in quarrels with is because Jesus has demonstrated to us how it's possible. And we are all like Judas and Peter. Every single one of us in this room You and me have disobeyed, we have rebelled, we have denied, we have rejected, we have offended, and we have blasphemed a holy God. But in love, He washes us. Amen? He has forgiven us when we did not deserve forgiveness. And when He was hanging on that cross, how many of your sins were in the future? All of them. Just like knowing what Judas had already done, Jesus gets down on his knees and washes his feet. Jesus knowing every sin that you and I would commit, the ones that everybody sees and the ones that only we know about. Jesus knew about all of those, yet he still went to the cross. That's why Romans 5.8 says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He knew what he was doing. And the test of whether you are a loving person The test of whether you are experiencing spiritual maturity or if you're understanding the gospel rightly or the test of if you're truly ready to engage in the life of a church family is this. Are you a forgiving person? Just like the man in Matthew 18, you have been forgiven a massive debt. And we have been forgiven an infinite amount of sin debt, one that we could never pay. And when you think of all that God has forgiven you for, you begin to see your own life. Those times where you have held on to bitterness and anger and judgment toward others. When you understand how much you have sinned against the Holy God, your anger, your bitterness, your rejection of others begins to look shallow in comparison. And see, the forgiveness of God in the lives of His people is a beautiful testimony to the greatness of the gospel. And so if we as a church are a forgiving church that will communicate to our city that, we, that the gospel is a beautiful thing. As a minister, there have been many times where I have been brought in to mediate between church people who are angry toward one another. And as a minister, there are often times where I've offended people and I've had to have mediators <laughs> brought in to mediate between myself and other church people. But I've sat through many of these type of mediation meetings and sometimes the anger and the bitterness and the unforgiveness in the room, it seems very valid. There are real things and real hurt that has happened. Sometimes it seems very shallow. But in every case, whether it's a big reason or whether it's a small reason, divisiveness within God's family always hurts the witness of the gospel in the church. It always does. And people will say to me, you don't know what this person has done to me. You don't know how much hurt they've inflicted on me. You're right, I don't. And I do know how much hurt others can inflict on us. I've experienced that in my own life. But I do know this, that in comparison to the forgiveness and the mercy that you have received in Christ, whatever conflict you have looks like you are arguing over a a $5 bill when you've been forgiven 200,000 years worth of salary. In a church family, there will be times where we disagree with one another. That's what happens when people get together. There will be times where people make you so mad 
I, I know this, okay? Church people can make you mad. But the test of our health as a church and our maturity as the people of God is if we are gracious, forgiving, and patient with one another in the midst of all the hurt and the pain. Jesus washed Judas's feet. Jesus washed Peter's feet. Jesus took away your sin debt and replaced it with his righteousness. We can forgive others. We can do it. We have the power, and it's hard, and it costs us sometimes, but we have the power in Christ to forgive those who have wronged us, even in the most significant ways. I want you to see that love begets love. That's a fancy word. Love, when you experience love, you, it results in you showing love toward others. Or, to say it this way, this is why knowing Christ Come, must come before growing together. Our mission statement as a church is that we know Christ through the scriptures and we grow together as a family. We cannot grow together as a family until we first know Christ. We've got to understand Christ's love before we can show Christ's love to one another. And when Jesus says, love one another just as I have loved you, what's he doing? He is asking us to reflect upon His love, His humility, His forgiveness, and His sacrifice so that we can be properly motivated to love one another. Jesus is saying that before we can know how to love one another correctly, we must first know and see that we are loved by Him. And we must know and see how great of a love that is. This is the story of how the gospel, the Christian message, shapes our lives. That when we've been forgiven much, we can forgive little. And we can forgive much as well. When we look at the gospel of Jesus, it ought to transform us. My former pastor used to say, those who really believe the gospel, those who really comprehend the gospel, show it by becoming like the gospel. Those who really believe that Jesus has forgiven us all of our sin debt, and those who really believe that Jesus has exercised compassion and mercy and has lowered himself to wash our feet, those who really believe that show it by becoming like that. One of my favorite stories, movies, plays, books, you name it, musicals, I love it. One of my favorite stories in the world is Les Miserables. And in that story, you have a lifelong hardened criminal, Jean Valjean, who leaves prison and just the criminal lifestyle is in his bones. He doesn't know how to do anything else. And he leaves prison. And he goes and he stays the night with a priest. A priest allows him to spend the evening with him. And when the priest was asleep, Jean Valjean tries to steal all his silver from him. Which is very valuable. He, tries to, he puts it in a bag and he runs off. Well, and then the guards, the police find Jean Valjean and they bring him back to the priest and they say, we found this man, he stole all your silver. And what does the priest do? The priest says, no, he didn't, I gave that to him. And the guards walk away and the priest comes up to Jean Valjean and he says, I'm giving you a new start. You can be a new man. You don't have to be a criminal any longer. And the story goes, Jean Valjean took that to heart. He experienced that compassion and it changed him. And he went on to start a new life. And he went on to become a compassionate and kind and caring person. He was transformed 
by someone else's love toward Him. Those who have been shown love, show love. This is the story of the man who was forgiven of talents. Yet re- this is why the story of the man who was forgiven of 10,000 talents, yet refuses to forgive 100 denarius. Why it's so ridiculous. Because somebody who's been forgiven that amount, it would be absurd for them to hold on to a small amount of debt that somebody owed them. It would be absurd. Because if we've experienced the love and the massive depth and joy of the gospel, we ought to show that to others. You see, Jesus is not merely giving us just an example to follow. He's giving us the motivation to love others. Why do we love others? 1 John 4.19 says, We love because He first loved us. If we want to be church as a family, we must know Christ first. We must love Him so that we can love others. And everything in our body fights against humility, doesn't it? And everything in our body fights against patience and self-sacrifice, doesn't it? We're not naturally forgiving. We're not naturally humble. We're not naturally that nice of people, period. But when we've been shaped and transformed by the gospel, when we've experienced it, it ought, we ought to feel compelled now to live it out. That's what the gospel does. That's how the gospel transforms a church. It starts with you being transformed by the hope of the gospel, and then it works its way out into the life of the church as we love others with the love of the gospel. So how do we apply this message, this message of Jesus loved us, therefore we love? Our temptation when we hear a sermon like this is often to go, you know, I should be more humble. I should be more forgiving. I should be more patient. That's what our natural selves always go, okay, I'm going to be more humble. And maybe you make like a spreadsheet of like ways I can be humble this week. Or like a spreadsheet or like a to-do list. Kyle, our new associate pastor, I love it because he's like super organized. But he's got like Google Drive files for every little thing. And like he's so organized. And sometimes when we hear these commands of the scriptures, we go, okay, I'm not that humble. I need to create a system where I can be humble. I need to like set goals and have a to-do list and have spreadsheets that tell me ways I can be humble. And sure, we ought to do those things. We ought to try and strive to be more humble and more patient and forgiving. But the reality is that we can try and try to do these things, and maybe we can do them well for a season, but we're not, probably not going to build our life around them, and we're probably going to be just doing them in our own power. I am pretty good at diets for four days. I can't, do, I can't keep a diet in my own power, can I? There's got to be a power greater than the food that I want that it propels me to keep the diet. And that might be that my health is out of whack. Or it might be that I'm not feeling very well. Or it might be that I just want my insurance premiums lowered. A greater desire has, has to come in place before we can actually change our behavior. And so the message today is not be more humble. Or I'm going to go home and read a book on humility. That's not the message. Because then you're just doing it in your own power. We want to be humble. We don't want to do it disconnected from the power of Jesus. If you want humility, you connect yourself to Jesus. So here's what I mean. Look at Judas. Judas did everything that ever could have been asked of him. He had the best growth group. (laughs) He was the best small group you could ever be in. He had the best pastor. He had the best teacher, Jesus. He had the best accountability partners, the disciples. He even had ministry success. The Bible shows Judas going out with other disciples and healing people and seeing miracles. 
He had heard all the best sermons. He had read all the best books. He had heard all of Jesus' teachings. He had even obeyed Jesus' commands well enough to not really gain any suspicion from the other disciples. They thought he was one of them. He looked like a model Christian. And he's the kind of guy that would hear a sermon on humility and patience and forgiveness and he would say, I'm going to go out and I'm going to show you how humble and patient and forgiving I can be. But here's the problem with Judas. He had never reflected on and truly received the love of Jesus. And he was not connected to the source of power that gives a truly transformed life, a life of humility and patience and forgiveness. He never let Jesus' love for him sink so deep into his core So therefore, he never truly loved Jesus nor acted like Jesus. And you've got to hear me when I say this. You can hear all the application points. You can hear all the sermons. And you can be a nice person, but you can do all of that not yet transformed by the gospel of Jesus. If you want to be a humble and patient and forgiving person, step one is not make a spreadsheet or a to-do list of being more humble. Step one is know Jesus. Connect with Jesus. Ignatius of Loyola, which is a funny name, he was a 16th, 16th century theologian, and he wrote what we would basically call a devotional book, you know, the kind you buy where it's got like Monday, Tuesday, little devotional thoughts. He wrote one of the first devotional books ever, and it's called The Spiritual Exercises. And the first three weeks of his devotional are some of the most amazing things I've ever seen. His first week, this is what he, it, spiritual exercises to becoming like Christ. He says, week one, spend seven days doing nothing but repenting of your sins. <laughs> don't, read the, don't read any books. Don't read any devotionals. Just spend a week repenting of your sins. And then the next two weeks, he says, reflect on these. And he gives 51 instances in the life of Christ of Jesus forgiving people of significant sins. And he says, now spend two weeks meditating on these 51 instances. And he said, only as you've contemplated your sin and Jesus' forgiveness, then can you move on to then do all the other actions of the Christian life. And this week, so I'll just give you an exercise. Why don't you read this chapter a few times? John chapter 13. Read it every day this week and meditate on it and think about what Christ did for you and put yourself in the place of Judas. And say, I've betrayed Jesus, I've denied Jesus, I've rejected Jesus, yet he lowers himself and he washes my feet. Put yourself in the place of Peter. He lowers himself and he washes my feet. And reflect on God's kindness toward you this week. And then next week we can love one another well. (laughs) I want to give you the opportunity to meditate on Christ's work for you today. And to do that we're going to be taking the Lord's Supper as we do every week. And what the Lord's Supper is, is it is a symbol that allows us to reflect upon Christ's body being broken and his blood being shed for us on our behalf. And as you take the elements, the bread and the cup, or the body and the blood, I want you to reflect on Jesus' sacrifice and his love for you. And I want you to reflect on the cost that he paid, the price that he paid so that you could now know him and be reconciled to God. And when we sing, in a moment, I'll ask you to stand and you can come forward and take those elements. But I do want to say that if you're not a follower of Jesus this morning, I want to ask you to refrain from taking communion with us because this is a family thing. If if you don't know Jesus, this is just a cracker and Welch's grape, actually generic Welch's grape juice. That's all it is. If you're not a follower of Jesus, it's, it's not a symbol for you. This is, a, for, this is the family thing. 
In the chapter we've studied today, in verse 8 through 11, Jesus talks about the difference between having a bath and having your feet washed. Verse, chapter, verse 10 says, The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. See, communion is a way, as Christians, we believe that Jesus has cleansed us and forgiven us of our sins. We've been washed. We've had the bath. And the communion every week is like getting our feet washed every week and just reminding ourselves of Jesus' forgiveness of us. But if you've never placed your faith and your trust in Jesus, what you need is not your feet washed. What you need is a bath. Jesus said, not all of you are clean. You need to be cleansed of your sins. You need to have your place in heaven reserved for you by the blood of Jesus. And so while you're watching us, followers of Jesus, take communion, will you use that time to consider placing your faith in Jesus as well? And as these Christians around you begin to receive the table of communion, would you consider receiving the forgiveness of Christ in your own life? And in a moment or right now, James and the band are going to begin playing our next song. And in a moment, I'm going to ask you all to stand and we're going to sing and we're going to worship and the people of God are going to begin taking communion, but I'm going to stand right here and if you would like to experience prayer, if you would like me to pray with you and explain to you how you can receive the forgiveness of Jesus, I'm standing right here by the communion table and I'd be happy to talk you through what it's like to have your sins washed. And so I'm going to say a quick word of prayer and then we're going to sing and you can come.